Hi, Allison. Hi, Jess. Uh, so fancy meeting you here. Oh my gosh. At our podcast. What are you doing here? That's that's crazy. I did not expect to see you at this podcast that we've been talking about off and on for several years. It's almost like we've been joking about it for years and years, and now it's finally <laughs> mm-hmm. here. So Alice and I have talked about me- doing a podcast for several years now, mostly joking, but then we were like, we're not in school anymore. We have some free time. We have disposable income. Why not? Let's start it. Um, Income, it's a little... We can move on from that, but I definitely do not (laughs) have disposable income. Define disposable income, I guess, is the better question for myself. So, Allison, would you like to tell our three to five friends who are going to listen to this first episode (laughs) what this podcast is about? Oh and what gosh, our name I'd is love to yes of course so the podcast is called salt lime story time um basically jess and i are going to tell each other stories every episode ranging from a variety of topics we would just talk about if we were just in a room together hanging out the the general theme is alice and i have always been good at telling each other a story anytime that we've stayed up late just chatting it always ends up one of us telling the other a good story about whatever topic we're interested in for allison it is plane crashes for me it's the oxford comma and its importance Mm. in history just a slew of subjects and we thought you know what we think we're really funny and we're really entertaining and we know how to tell a story so why not share our storytelling abilities with the world so every week we're going to pick a theme this week for example our theme is miraculous survival stories which allison will get into in a second um but week to week we'll chat about a theme and tell each other a story or chat about that theme at length uh week to week and it's gonna be great we're really excited so allison do you want to tell us a little bit about what this episode is going to be about um, Jess, I would love to. Thank you so much. Um, so yeah, basically this episode, we decided for our first episode, we'd like to do um, something really big and cool. And um, something that came to mind was miraculous stories of survival. Um, stories of survival where uh, one person or multiple people survived a situation or a circumstance where they, by all means, probably should not have survived it. Um, And this was a really fun one to research. And I am excited to tell you about my story. And I'm very excited to hear what yours is about. I can't wait. Thanks, Allison. (laughs) Um, I guess I can go first. I feel like yours is going to be better. But I don't think that's true. I have never underestimated your research skills ever. So you go first, and I'm going to sit back and sip on this margarita and enjoy what you have to say. All right. Allison, first off, I have a question for you. How long do you think that you could survive at sea? Oh, like 15 minutes. Honest to God, I'm such a baby. Like, as soon as I got too hot, like, I would just jump overboard. And you know that I can't swim. So I'm going to be completely honest. (laughs) I really can. It's 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 really embarrassing, and I at this point I don't want to do adult swim lessons because my pride. Anyway, um, I I would not last long, Jess. I really, I really don't think I would. I you know how hangry I get. Yes. Imagine if I were hungry but also like really hot and just in the middle of the ocean. I, I just don't think I could make it. Okay. Well, <laughs> I'm glad to know that you're honest with yourself and you know kind of where your limitations are. Um, 
So what if I were to tell you that there is a man who survived in a boat for 13 months without an engine, without radio, without GPS, and very limited fishing supplies? I would say that that gives me a lot of anxiety, (laughs) but I'm very excited to hear about it. Oh my god. So. Oh no. Let's just jump into this. Have you, you've never heard this story? I think I might have. Okay. I might have. I'm not sure yet. I had never, I did not know this existed. It happened in 2012. So think peak middle of middle school. Mm-hmm. Absolutely Ugh. just not paying attention to the news. So who am I to judge myself? But all right. So let's get into this. I'll say my sources at the end. So in November 2012, what a year, Salvador Alvarenga went fishing off the coast of Mexico with a person that he barely knew that he had hired last minute to go uh, fish with him because his usual fishing companion was sick that day or just couldn't, um, couldn't make it. So they get on this boat off the coast of Mexico and while they are on this boat, um, they experience a storm at, in the ocean. Now, this boat is about 24 feet long. It has a dinky motor, an ice chest, and no real covering. So, like, imagine an elongated motorboat that, like, your great uncle has at Bear Lake. Oh, no. Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what you're working with, just a little bit longer. Okay. So they, um, they're on this boat, they're fishing. They have a really great, like first couple of hours of fishing, right? Um, they are quoted at having about 500 pounds worth of, of fish. Um, they were deep sea fishing. So like big, like big style mm. fish. I don't know much about fish clearly. <laughs> um, <laughs> if you could give me more specifics, Jess, that'd be great. Okay, so they're about 50 miles out to sea. The man that he was fishing with, Ezekiel Cordoba, um, he met literally like the day before. He's This guy's 23. Um, he's very seldom been on a boat. He doesn't have a ton of experience, but he knows how to put in a, a hard 12 hours workday, which is why um, Alvarenga was like, okay, fine, you'll do for the, for the meantime. So he's got an inexperienced fisherman on with him, but um, Alvarenga is a very, very seasoned fisherman. That's like what he's done for most of his life. He's, he's got a really good sense for how to navigate, how to deal with all the things. So when a storm hits, he's like, all right, bet we'll be fine. <laughs> um, but very quickly their boat starts getting filled with water uh-huh. and they kind of have to make this this really snap decision because they've radioed into land. He's trying to get a hold of his boss. Um, he's basically like, we need help. And then his radio goes dead. So he's kind of stuck. Like, I got to make these decisions really quick, really snappy. So they decide to throw all of their fish overboard. Uh, so that way they can get some of the weight out. No, right? don't do that. Um, so over the course of a night and then several hours beyond that, they're just getting pummeled by this five day storm and they don't know this, but they're drifting hundreds of miles off of shore, but like past where they had originally left from left the shore. Cordoba is like, 
sobbing um in in the accounts um in of alvaringo's accounts after the fact he talks about how the first several days were basically him trying to calm uh this 23 year old down and be like it's gonna be okay i know this is really scary but um we just have to like figure it out so several hours several hours pass there's they're trying to bail themselves out it's crazy um at this point they have been out there for over two days the storm lasts for a total of five they now don't have any food because they've thrown all this fish over overboard and they're in shark infested waters so (sighs) they've just thrown a bunch of dead fish overboard and they're in shark infested (laughs) waters oh that's so horrifying exactly (laughs) So no. also in the course of this, um, Alvarenga left his anchor at home because he was only supposed to be out. Like he wasn't going far enough in that he thought he'd need an anchor. So he has no anchor either. So he can't stop his boat from drifting. All he has is buoys to drag him down. So like he has no way to stop the boat. He has no engine because at one point the engine gets damaged in the first five days of the storm. And he's like, hey, guess we're figuring this out so after his gps fails after this radio fails after they've been like basically just in survival mode because they're also like they're in a storm on the ocean so they're soaked they're bailing water for hours on end just trying to make it so their ship or their like boat doesn't tip over miraculously because alvaringa is an incredible fisherman he's very comfortable on the water he knows how to like maneuver the boat through waves with the best he can with just like his hand till Mm -hmm. and they make it through this storm but at this point they're hundreds of miles from where they were and because he doesn't doesn't have a gps um to know where they last were when he could see the stars he can't even use his like nautical skills of like star mapping Um, there's probably an actual term for that. I don't know what it is. Um, but he's like, they, they have no idea where they are and they don't see any land. There's nothing, there's nothing that they've got. Um, and they're at this point, um, they've had to toss all of their stuff overboard. So they're starving. The storm's over, but they're like, Hey, what do we do? Alvarenga again survival bear girls could never this guy starts catching fish in shark infested waters with his bare hands (laughs) there is a video of him on the internet on cnn shout out cnn i guess um of him showing how he did this it's like no it's literally he'd like hold his hands in the water until they got close enough and then he'd do like this like clapping motion yes exactly (laughs) precisely i clearly have not seen the lord of the rings in a long time wait Um, i thought you were gonna say ever i was really upset for a minute no i've seen it i just watched it that's my problem so they start eating raw fish they also are able to catch turtles and occasional flying fish but there's still the problem of like they're in the pacific ocean like they have they only have salt water around them so they're also like they're out of water at this point So they start drinking their own urine, which dehydrates you faster. But like, what are you going to like, what are you supposed to do? You know? Um, So then they also start drinking turtle blood 
um, to, to help with, uh, help with dehydration. And finally, after about a month, so keep in mind, they've gone through a five day storm. They're catching raw meat and that's how they're living is off of raw meat. At one point in the story, um, Alvaringa describes finding sea trash and finding carrots, like rotted carrots and like freaking out because it was the first time that they'd had anything besides raw fish meat or bird meat in like weeks and days. Um, So then they also, uh, after about 14 or so days at sea without any clean, like without any water, they're just like doing this urine and blood thing. Um, it finally starts raining. So they're finally able to start like collecting water and, um, they, they have like a five gallon bucket that they're able to start like collecting rainwater. So they find, they develop this system of like collecting rainwater. So they now have clean drinking water, but they're still subsisting off of like raw fish Ugh, and raw turtles sushi again. and like seabirds. Uh, um, no. <laughs> no. Yes. No. Yes. Ew. Oh, not the seagulls. Oh, yes, exactly. Oh, rip. Um, so they like are able to. They start collecting any sort of water bottles that they can get off of the sea trash. So I guess ocean trash does have a perk when you're in a survival situation. The silver um, lining. The silver lining of us ruining our oceans. It's fine. Um, so they also were like able to get like any sort of sealed food that way. So that they there's because they're in this like very common shipping container section of the ocean, they're getting a lot of trash. So they're able to survive kind of that way. And after about two months, uh, Alvarenga has like really mastered kind of, again, he's, he's very much this whole story. You just kind of get the sense that he is a survivalist and it's a very interesting thing. Cause, um, he compares his experience to Cordoba's and talks about how he was able to kind of cope with the immense loneliness of only being the two of them on board. And he kind of stepped up into it where Cordoba, which you, again, he's 23. He doesn't know this man he's on the boat with. He got, he was hired for $50 for the day. And like, mm. this is how it is. Um, <laughs> and he begins to experience severe severe depression and starts refusing to eat and starts refusing to drink and basically he as as anyone would like you said 15 minutes in he starts he starts giving up um so at this point obviously and 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 i will say this is all alvaringa's account unfortunately cordoba dies as I'm, I'm sure is probably not a surprise at this point um so we only have the one side of the story um but apparently the two of them made a pact and um they say whichever one of us survives the other one needs to go to our parents if we both survive we'll go both go to each other's families like they start kind of making these packs and they're both very spiritual faithful men Wait, at so this point, how long have they been out there two or three months oh my god so okay. imagine being on a boat with someone no, you don't know i don't want to 25 feet uh, 25 feet of space it's so small Yes. 
So they start talking about their families. Mm -hmm. They start talking about, you know, they, they really get to know each other. So that's what makes this next part so sad is that like, this is, it's, it's kind of like um, the castaway thing when, when Tom Hanks loses his volleyball, because like, this is the only, they're, they're each other's only source of comfort or of like sanity in this whole experience. So um, a couple of months in Cordoba finally passes he succumbs to the the ailments of having been living off of raw meat with a little water the sun exposure and the mental toll that this took on him so alvarenga watches his only companion die in front of him but at this point he's several months into this and has his mental he, he's not in the same reality as he was when he first got on that boat you have because I mean you can't I can't imagine you'd have you have to readjust your perception mm-hmm. of like what is normal in order mm-hmm. to survive this um so Alvarenga recounts that he propped Cordoba's body up on the end of the end of the boat and proceeded to continue to have conversations with him in, but supplying his Cordoba's side of the conversation now that he dead he's dead and they have a whole he recounts this whole conversation that he had with the corpse um regarding what death was like what heaven was like all of this stuff and he keeps he keeps um Cordoba's body in the boat with him for six days because he's just so devastated and he can't yeah let go of his only his only friend in the world at this point um, this only person who can understand like what he's going through and and all of this. When Alvarenga recounts his experience, um, he's quoted as saying, first I washed his feet. His clothes were useful. So I stripped off a pair of shorts and a sweatshirt. I put that on. It was red with a little skull and crossbones. And then I dumped him in. And as I slid him into the water, I fainted. So oh my God. just to like... Cordoba is 23. He's younger than us, like still brand new to life. He's still wearing sweatshirts with graphics on them. Like <laughs> it's just so devastating to a Cordoba's family. Yeah. For for fifty dollars, like they, it's it's fifty dollars that that he they like he just got on a boat and got so unlucky. And then also for Alvarenga because now he knows if if he is the he has to survive to tell Cordoba's family and like yeah explain to them i made it and your son didn't um so after he wakes up from from fainting alvarenga who is like i said they're only they're only a couple months out to sea and it's kind of iffy on how long it was before cordoba died because um alvarenga is tracking time using lunar phases so um it's not 100 percent accurate uh around the two or three month mark and keep in mind, Alvarenga is out to sea for 14 months. So he then, after dealing with this, um, proceeds to survive in that same manner on this boat for another 11 or so months. He's out for a total of 463 days. So um, oh, no. he, he goes, uh, he kind of like I said, he's listened to this alternate reality. He talks about how he would take these walks on the boat end to end constantly to keep himself moving and to make it feel like he was having a normal day. He'd have, he like slipped into these hallucinations of like talking to his family, eating all the food that he'd want if he was home, 
Um, and as I mentioned, he was a very faithful man. And so the thing that he says kept him going is that his mom, the entire time he was growing up, was um, would, would talk about how if you take your own life, you can't get into heaven, which I will say on this podcast, we do not agree with. No, we don't but, it was kind of his motivating factor of like, I want to see God. I want to see my family again. So I am going to keep, keep going. And that level of drive, like we said, fit you 15 minutes, me 23, maybe. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Just tap out. Me, I won't get on a cruise ship. So like, it's That's fine. Um, anyway, suddenly, um, Albert, like about, like we said, about 14 months into this, he, the other thing that's so frustrating is also he keeps seeing shipping container boats, which are these huge, like, like, I mean, the shipping container, like giant, giant sea structures, but because they're like, so it's, it's literally to get things, things from point A to point B, um, nobody stops for him because his, his dinghy is virtually invisible to the crew because they're all operating this giant boat from like the recesses i mean i don't really know how shipping container boats work but um Mm -hmm. like they're from what i understand they're a pretty minimal crew and it's about getting from point a to point b they're not it's not like a cruise ship where there's people looking over the edges watching out for these for these kinds of things um so he says that over the course of the 14 months he saw 20 20 to 25 of these boats pass him with no so you're like seeing you're so close and like there's still no reprieve see that um, would destroy me like that yes. would be i know so can you, hard to move no i can't that's... even fathom like i just Cannot remember the fathom. other day like waiting for a bus and like it kept i kept running after it and it kept speeding away it happened like four times it was in scotland i was trying to figure it out and i was at the point where i was ready to just give up and i was out there for maybe 20 minutes like and this was happening to him at sea? Yes, at sea. Um, oh, no. Absolutely insane. So finally, like I said, um, 400, uh, approximately 463 days into his journey, uh, about 14 months, he wakes up and notices shorebirds. And again, because he is such an experienced fisherman, he can tell the difference on when shorebirds are around and land must be nearby. Um, so Alvarenga makes the terrifying decision to cut the buoys, which are the only form of like any sort of anchor he's had for these last 14 months. And without them, his boat is much more likely to tip over should he, when, when, and if he experiences another sea storm Mm -hmm. or ocean storm. Um, and he lets his boat, but he's like, if I don't do this, my boat won't drift close enough, close enough to the land for me to be able to swim. So he does this, takes the gamble because also the island looks like it's inhabited. Um, mm-hmm. He doesn't know, and again, he doesn't know where he's he is, but he does it. He cuts the buoys. He gets close enough to um, he gets close enough to the island's beach. He's about ten yards from shore, and he jumps off the boat for the first time and swims to shore. Oh my god! Oh my god! Um, and he he's quoted by saying i held a handful of sand like it was treasure um so now keep in mind this man has not experienced dry land in 14 months 
He has sea legs in every sense of the word. Um, they say that the only reason he didn't succumb to scurvy is because he was able to live off of birds who had eaten an, birds and uh, turtles who had had enough citrus in their meat and blood to keep him like from the brink of scurvy. So he um, crawls ashore onto this island in the Marshall Islands, which is one of the most remote places in the world. And happens to end up on an island where a couple has a beach home and they happen to be there when he crawls up. And they they recount the story of him um, crawling because he can't really walk on land. He's so used to being on sea. And then he's also like skeletal because, oh I God. mean, yeah, he's been living off of nothing basically for 14 months. Um, they bring him into the house and uh they talk to him for an hour and neither of them speak each other's languages so um alvaringa is just recounting his story and these guys are like i don't know what you're saying but clearly Sounds you've real seen bad. some shit um and i and they recount that they all just started laughing hysterically and about an hour later um they have to convince him because they're on this remote island in the marshall islands they have to get to the main island um mm. so they have to talk him into getting on a boat again after yeah. he's just been on a boat for 14 months yeah about um, that. and uh he they get him they get him medical help um they obviously of course the moment he's there you know the government the news and the government you know kind of starts getting involved and people start questioning his story and it's like it, in total they estimate that he drifted about seven thousand or seven thousand miles in the course of his his journey and there's there's some estimated maps based off of again trash <laughs> um right. trash drifts and because he had no way to control the boat so um anyway they he receives medical help um on january 30 or the 31st of january um and there's all of this debate online on if it actually happens but um all of the medical personnel that treated him was like everything that he's saying he experienced checks out with like the way his body is reacting all of he was heavily scarred obviously had experienced a lot of sun damage um, and then his body, because he hadn't had access to as much water as he was given, um, his body bloats because oh, it can't, man. it's muscle, his muscles can't even like absorb the water yet. Uh, luckily after, after many days, he makes, um, as well of a recovery as you can. And, um, he finally, finally gets to, uh, or he's diagnosed with anemia. Um, he like is dealing with insane amounts of PTSD, all of these things. Um, but he's finally reunited with his family, which prior to this, he'd been estranged from his parents, um, and, and a daughter for quite some time, even prior to getting on this boat initially. So they had thought his parents had thought he'd been dead for years because he hadn't talked to them. Um, and obviously they don't detail kind of why that is. Um, but he, finally makes it home to his parents. He reunites with his daughter and he credits his mom for her faith and like helping him have this kind of compass to keep him going, even when it got super hard. And then there also, he, he, after he fully recovers, he visits Cordoba's mother and, um, 
later on, Cordoba's family sues him um, for potential cannibalism that never went anywhere. Um, I think that obviously grief and the anger of survival um, versus non-survival kind of kicks in and, and right. um, you know, but he initially gets to fulfill his promise to Cordoba. He tell there's a very touching image of him hugging Cordoba's mother and kind of telling him about their experience. Um, and he's after after 438 days and a lot of a lot of medical repair later he's quoted as saying i suffered hunger thirst and extreme loneliness and didn't take my life you only get one chance to live so appreciate it wow and that is the story of how jose alvarenga survived for 438 days at sea in a 25 foot boat with no oh motor, no GPS, and no anchor. Well, I could never. No, absolutely not. I would tap out so fast. Like, I know that, you know, people talk about the endurance and, you know, human spirit and how far that can get you. But after the other guy were to, like, were to die, like, I feel like that would really that I don't know that would make it really hard to want to keep going no I and I think that's the thing is is and and he he talks about in a couple interviews I watched where um he talks about how like he won't get on a boat again he's definitely afraid of the ocean which like, oh who yeah can blame him oh my gosh um and he but he talks about how like the hallucinations he experienced were almost spiritual because they were so intense and he's like there's nothing no one can I can never describe it to anyone because I basically had to slip into this alternate reality to survive and so I think it's just like it's another testament to how insane the human spirit is and like you like you said um how resilient we are what if one of the turtles he ate was like crushed from finding nemo and so he just got we super cannot. high and yeah. <laughs> that's what the, where the hallucin- hallucination i'm just saying it's a possibility i don't know i think also like the parasites that he was probably ingesting from all of the raw meat and trash he was forced mm-hmm. to eat that that probably makes more sense whole bio happening right 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 so just tiny little village of nasty that's fair wow well that was really nice um in a really horrifying way good job i hated that i really hated it (laughs) i Um, thought that you would be absolutely astonished um just really quick i got my information from an article by jonathan franklin that was featured in the guardian when this first happened uh, the History Channel article on it, and of course, Wikipedia, and a, a couple of interviews on CNN. Got it. Cool. Well, so Allison, can I make another margarita real fast? Yes, absolutely. Okay, I'm gonna do that. One minute. I just tried to pause you. <laughs> Oh my god. Oh, that doesn't make sense. Okay.
Hi there, editing Allison here. I just wanted to make a quick disclaimer before I tell my story that you will hear me laugh uh, more than once during inappropriate times while I'm telling this story, and it is not because I am a bad person or I think what I am talking about is funny. I am laughing because I kept looking at Jess's fucking facial expressions and they were cracking me up. She wasn't saying anything, she just looked horrified, and it was the funniest thing I've ever seen in my life, but you can't see that because this is a podcast and I just want you to know that I'm not actually a horrible person. Thank you so much. Okay. Jess, have you heard of the Cokeville hostage crisis? No. Oh, thank God. Your your pause made concern me in Cokeville, Wyoming. No. For a second, I thought you said Colville, like the tiny town outside Park City, Utah. Shout out, Kenzie. (laughs) you're listening (laughs) no um yeah cokeville um which is you can make a lot of jokes about that name is all i could think about for for a little bit of this no this is one of the most insane stories i've ever heard in my life i the very first time i heard it was on a two girls one ghost episode it was episode 168 and then i also uh, read an article called 10 years later by desert news ruth ann mitchell uh, wyominghistory.org wikipedia um, the Cokeville Miracle movie, and I survived season nine, episode six. Now, Jess, come with me, if you will, to a warm spring day in 1986, Cokeville, Wyoming. In 1986, about 500 people lived in Cokeville, and there were slightly more than 100 students attending the elementary school. Uh, <laughs> so literally like a fifth of the town were kids. Uh, that went to the elementary school. The elementary school was uh, kindergarten through sixth grade. It was considered to be a very safe town, ideal for raising children. And then I said, enter David and Doris Young. All right, so just after 1 p.m. on Friday, May 16th, 1986, a seemingly very normal school day at Cokeville Elementary would soon become a living nightmare. Classes were interrupted by 47-year-old Doris Young, a strange woman vaguely recognized by the staff, She told the teachers to gather their children and meet her in the first grade classroom for a surprise. The teachers were hesitant, but Doris was demanding and they assumed it was a meeting or an impromptu assembly of some sort. Um, Many of the students were actually really excited, thinking it was a birthday party or a game. And I don't know if you remember the feeling of getting to go to an assembly in the middle of class. It was like the best day ever. So she lured 136 children, six faculty, nine teachers, and three other adults, including a job applicant and a UPS driver, into a 30 by 30. <laughs> what a bad day. <laughs> a UPS dropping- driver? Yeah, you're just dropping off a package and this crazy lady's like, hey, come here for a sec. And you're like, no. And she's like, just a sec, I promise, pinky swear, it'll only be a sec. And then you get taken hostage, I'd be pissed. I, anyway. That literally would happen to me. Um, (laughs) Not to tangent for a second, but my friend and across the way neighbor, Jake, the very, like one of the very first conversations I ever had with him, he uh, knocked on my door and asked if I could help him carry an air conditioning unit into his apartment. And when I say that back, like to you, that is like a clear red flag. (laughs) And Jake is the nicest guy ever, but I totally did it. (laughs) I like walked with him right. into his apartment carrying this thing and then only after was like isn't that how Ted Bundy like killed people um, yeah. <laughs> so yeah, like basically. would be me but also 
Jake is the nicest person ever, so it's fine. <laughs> right, right. Well, I'm glad you're here to tell the tale or else it'd be really hard to have a podcast. So thank you. Um, okay. So she learned 136 children, faculty, teachers, and other adults, um, the UPS driver into a 30 by 30 foot first grade classroom for a total of 154 hostages. Once inside the classroom, the truth of the situation really began to sink in. All around them was an arsenal of rifles and handguns lined up against the chalkboard, as well as a small grocery cart full of enough explosives to flatten that wing of the school. It was a gasoline bomb, and attached to this homemade bomb by a cord tied around his wrist was Doris's shitty husband, 43-year-old David Young. So, let's pause for a minute. How are you feeling? Hey. Yeah, you just seem stressed. <laughs> let me let me make sure that I hear this correctly. Line yes. of rifles, a yes. grocery cart full of what? Explosives. Enough Explosives. To level the school and a gallon of gasoline. So it was a gasoline gallon bomb. of gasoline, and then a shitty a shitty husband. Okay, I mean just the perfect storm. Just setting Trifecta. just setting a scene for myself. Oh. Girl. I'm imagining this inside of an LDS church gym. I don't know why, but like the carpeted like walls and the whole wrong. bit, you like really add to it. No, you're you're completely right. That's exactly what this room looked like. Like one of one of the survivors literally remembers feeling the carpet on the walls. So <laughs> I'm sure okay. everything was beige and upsetting. Yes. And I hate beige more than most things in this world. It's weird. It really triggers me. So anyway. Yes, they're in a carpeted classroom. Like, it's a tiny classroom for 154 people to be stuck in, especially if there's literally, like, I think it was, like, more than, like, 10 guns lined up against the wall. And a lot of the kids thought it was, like, a weapon assembly, like, about gun safety. But some of the older ones saw, you know, the explosives, because it literally said explosives on it. And they kind of realized what was going on. Obviously, the teachers were pretty freaked out about what was going to happen so all right but many of the teachers began to recognize David as Cokeville's former town marshal in the 1970s until he was fired for misconduct so he was literally the sheriff of the town before he got fired um around this same time he met his second wife, Doris, who was a waitress and singer at a local bar. Shortly after being married, they left Cokeville and moved to Tucson, Arizona. Uh, they lived together in a mobile home with David's youngest daughter, Princess. And no, she's not a little white dog with crusty eyes. She's a person. <laughs> they named her Princess. Uh, Has even that like restitution? <laughs> that in and of itself should be illegal I'm trying I like I really am trying not hard not to make fun of her name because she's a victim of this too but god it's really really testing me anyway um both David and Doris had daughters from previous marriages although David was estranged from his eldest all right so according to Doris's daughter Bernie Peterson during his time in Tucson David became increasingly reclusive focusing on his philosophical readings and writings he had spent years trying to mathematically disprove the existence of God and also prove the existence of reincarnation eventually he puts all of his philosophies together into a manifesto he called zeros equals infinity <laughs> I'm sorry. Anytime somebody writes their own manifesto, oh, yeah. it's 
could be a bigger name red me, flag. Name me one manifesto that's worked out for the writer. <laughs> like, maybe for the group around them, sure. But the manifesto yeah. for the author, not never, ending well. It's never a good thing. If someone walks in and is like, hey, check out this manifesto, run in the opposite direction, even if that means through a wall. Just get out of there. You know what I mean? Just it, nothing good is going to come from that. And oh my God. Um, that is true in this situation as well. He then contacted two lifelong friends, Gerald, I think is, it's Deppy, it's D-E-P-P-E, um, I know, so I'm going to say Deppy, um, whatever, he can fight me if it's wrong, so um, he, he contacted two lifelong friends, Gerald Deppy and Doyle Mendenhall, and convinced them to invest in his get-rich-quick scheme, he called the Biggie, <laughs> and for all intents and purposes, I will now be referring to it as David's Biggie, just for clarification, um, you're okay with that so he was unclear on the details of the plan but both his friends were under the assumption uh, sorry under the assumption it had to do with fireworks since David had been working heavily with explosives in the last little bit um in reality David had been perfecting his bomb and had several successful test runs which he thoroughly documented he even went so far as to blow up an empty school bus in the middle of the Arizona desert just to make sure it was deadly enough yeah, so this guy was really, really thorough in making sure that this would work. I, too, like to go to the Arizona <laughs> desert and play with pyrotechnics, but you won't catch me wanting to ch- kill children. Yeah, I feel like that's a really big jump in the wrong direction, you know? Like, a nice fireworks display is one thing, but I don't know, just, just maybe take a nice bath instead you know cook dinner go for, go for a run yeah clean your depression cave these are all things that could help um, make it so you don't write your own manifesto so after getting his plan together he loaded up his wife teenage daughter princess who i think was like about 18 or 19 at the time <laughs> i'm sorry it's not funny and two friends into the van and drove to cokeville it wasn't until they got into town that David told the others what his biggie big was. And that was to take over the elementary school and demand $2 million per child, <laughs> um, which is 308 million total. And Jess, would you like to guess what 308 million translates to today? $1 trillion. Um, no, but that was a that was a good guess. You gave it the good old college try. It's actually seven hundred and twenty million. Um, oh my bad. Yeah, yeah, just a little off. Um, after receiving the money, uh, his plan was to detonate the bomb, killing himself and the children, transporting them and the money into a brave new world where he would be God and they would live much better lives than here on Earth. Just casual, casual things. Just real fast. He told them all of that on the drive there. Can you imagine the awkward silence that followed in that van when they realized that he was cuckoo bananas, like fucking scheme? (laughs) His two friends were obviously like, um, let's not. And he was like, um, how about I handcuff you in the back of the van so you can't get away? And so that's what he did. And they continued on their way to the elementary school. After arriving... Doris, David, and Princess grabbed all the guns, ammo, and the bomb and entered the school, leaving the two handcuffed men in the back. This is when Princess refuses to participate and takes the keys to the van and with the two men still handcuffed in the back, drove to the police station to report her father's intentions. 
neither her or the two men would be charged for this crime. Now, this is the part where I really started to lose my mind in laughter because I just pictured a literal princess, like, running away from this. So, like, she was, like, in glass slippers and, like, drove away in a giant onion pulled by horses, you know? And, like, I could not get that image out of my head, unfortunately. I love um, how you're mixing this with, like, classic Disney fairy tales. <laughs> and and Shrek. Shrek. Yeah. <laughs> okay but shout out princess like good for her oh yeah no total badass like I I can't imagine what she must have felt in that moment because I mean obviously her father was very toxic to defy him when he literally had rifles he had like three guns strapped to him and a knife and there were a bunch of other guns in the vehicle like to say no and run away was must have took a lot of courage so so I like to give her the credit for that and the fact that the two other guys didn't want anything to do with it. Um, so I think it's fair that none of not, like none of them got charged for this crime. So anyway, first, David and Doris walk into the office and send the administrators and Cynthia, the job applicant, into classroom four and he follows. That's when Doris started telling classes there was a surprise. All right, so 154 hostages, tiny room, guns everywhere, crazy guy with the bomb. All right, so Doris handed out copies of David's manifesto for everyone to read, even like the little kids to read. And that's when the teachers really started to understand the gravity of the situation. Um, They said his ramblings made no sense and alluded to the fact that he was completely delusional and could not be reasoned with. Meanwhile, Doris kept repeating to the children how fun this was and they were, how they were on this great grand adventure together. So, creepy as could be. Um, barricades were made so nobody could leave the classroom, but they could still access the bathroom, which was inside the barricade next to the classroom door. At this point, terrified parents and first responders started gathering outside the school. Like, I can't imagine the folk, because after, you know, Princess reported it, Um, They started calling all the parents in town and telling them what was going on. And I can't imagine what that phone call must have been like. So um, they're all freaking out outside. And before I go any further, I'm going to tell you a little bit about the bomb because I know you as a bomb expert are probably very interested in this. So little known fact, they teach you how to make bombs when you get an English degree. I... (laughs) incredible wow who said it was useless yeah not me like yeah way better than my anthropology degree like what the fuck am I supposed to do with that tell me about a bomb that's what you're gonna do with it that's what I'm gonna do about it so it was an improvised explosive device constructed in a small two-wheeled shopping cart with two baskets one on top of the other so in the top basket there was a gallon milk jug full of gasoline which had a little blasting cap attached to it all right In the basket below that were two little tuna fish cans filled with aluminum powder and flour. And that was supposed to blow into the air and set the air on fire. That was the purpose of that. Throughout both baskets were chain links, gunpowder, and boxes of ammunition to act as shrapnel. Um, The mechanism was triggered by a dead man switch, which consisted of a wooden piece separating two metal connectors within the jaws of a clothespin, forming an incomplete circuit. So basically, once, so it was all powered by a a nine volt battery and that battery was attached to that um, little dead man switch. So basically, if that circuit were to be closed, the bomb would go off and that little piece of wood that was separating 
those two metal pieces from connecting was what was tied to his wrist. So that's why they call it a dead man switch. Because if anybody jostled him too much or shot him or tried to kill him or whatever, um, it would cause the bomb to go off. So it was like a good way of making sure that nobody tried to touch him. So you're telling me people survived the story? I mean, we'll see. But yeah, basically, like literally, like he only had to move his hand a few inches and it would pull it out. So as you can probably imagine, the children started getting upset and restless, much as you are probably feeling right now, just from hearing this <laughs> freaking story. Um, the gasoline in the bomb was leaking and the fumes were causing many of the children to get sick. Uh, teachers convinced David to let them open the windows to allow in some fresh air. And the teachers also gathered books, coloring supplies and games to try to pass the time. Um, many students comforted each other and helped keep the younger ones distracted, which is very sweet. Throughout the standoff, David grew increasingly agitated and irritable. Um, with fear that David might become unhinged, the teachers decided to make an eight-foot square of masking tape for his own personal space. And this is a quote from Carol Peterson. She was the second grade teacher that was in the room when this was all happening. And she said, as I sat there and watched him, I could feel he was becoming agitated. He just had big rings of perspiration. I was frightened and felt that we needed to do something to try to calm him down. So we decided to take some masking tape and we taped, I think it was an eight foot square in the middle of the room, right here. And he pushed the cart, the homemade bomb into this. And we told the children that this was the magic square. Don't go past this square. Some of the children just sat right all around and just watched him. And I'm sure that made him very nervous. I 100% would have been the kid to get everybody killed because I would be like jumping in and out of the square like oh no I'm in no, I'm not and I'd be like throwing paper airplanes at his head or something like I would have been being so annoying like I am so glad I wasn't there like I genuinely would have tipped the scales in the wrong direction I was such a dick when I was little so about two and a half hours into the standoff David transferred the triggering mechanism of the bomb to Doris's wrist and went to the small bathroom within the barricade. Doris developed a headache from the gasoline fumes and raised her hand to her forehead, accidentally removing the wooden piece and completing the circuit. The bomb exploded. The explosion was deafening. The air filled with an acrid black smoke. The distinct whooshing sound of gasoline being ignited roared all around them. Dozens of boxes of ammunition caught fire, causing the bullets to explode and fire in random directions. Shrapnel from the bomb whizzed through the air, and teachers recall hearing the screams of dozens of terrified students erupt in every direction. So they started yelling for the children, desperate to get them to safety. Art teacher John Miller pushed through the barricade, allowing students to flee down the hall and out the front door. Other teachers started passing children through the open windows. So David heard the blast and came out of the bathroom to, to see complete chaos. He saw John Miller helping the children escape, so he shot him in the back. He had a pistol in each hand and stood in the doorway, firing at both the window and the hallway exits at everybody fleeing. So he was just trigger happy, like boom, 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 in all, the, all directions trying to get people. One 10-year-old boy, Russ, was interviewed in an episode of I Survived as an adult and described what he saw. And I will never get this image out of my head. Um, so he said he looked up. The room was black except for a fireball coming straight for him. Then, inside the fireball, he saw three black holes, like two eyes and a mouth. He realized he was looking at the contorted face of Doris Young as she ran towards him, burning alive, 
eyes wide, screaming. He took this chance to run past David and into the hall and make it out of the school alive. David then shot Doris in the head, killing her instantly. Then David shot and killed himself. <laughs> you look like you're gonna be sick. Obviously, at this point, there was fire everywhere. There was smoke, shrapnel blasting all around. It was very dangerous. But regardless of the dangers, teachers ran in and out of the building several times to make sure every child had made it out safe. Cynthia, the job applicant, I love her, I love this woman, was one of the people helping the kids through the windows. And by helping them, I mean picking them up and, I quote, throwing them like yard darts. <laughs> Listen, just, I mean, there are doers, there are doers, and there are followers. And then this bitch was a doer. No, yeah, she was, he was not like, fuck Listen, it's either get burned alive or maybe you break an elbow. I don't oh. give a shit. No, for real. And okay, so just picturing that is just so I just picture her like throwing them in like footballs, like one after the other. <laughs> oh, oh my God. Anyway, so the smoke was so thick, she eventually had to jump out of the window herself because she literally could not breathe. She stepped away, took a few deep breaths of fresh air, and then went straight back to the windows. She yelled for the children to follow her voice and come towards the light. She remembers seeing little pairs of arms emerge from the black wall of smoke, allowing her to grab them, pull them through the window, and yeet them to safety. But I just think the image of just little arms coming through this thick smoke to be helped out of a window is just so sad. Um, outside the burning school, children and parents were being reunited. Many survivors were unrecognizable due to a thick layer of black soot that covered them head to toe. Many had been burned in the explosion, some severely, and needed medical attention. 79 children were taken to the hospital to be treated for burns and smoke inhalation, and John Miller, the teacher who was shot, was treated for his gunshot wound. He lived. Had he been shot just one centimeter over, he would have been hit in the spine, either paralyzing or killing him. Now, Jess, this leads to your question. How many survived? And the answer, everyone. All of the hostages made it out alive. The only deaths that day were David and Doris Young. Uh-huh. Oh, <laughs> I am speechless. Uh, that is incredible. Yeah. Oh, no, my gosh. All right, so um, Rich Haskell, a bomb expert that had been called to the scene, expected to see nothing but bodies being pulled from that building. He was shocked to witness survivor after survivor running from the burning school. David had built a bomb that should have killed every person in that room. Every child in Cokeville. An entire generation. So why didn't it? So investigators found several reasons for why the number of casualties was so low. Um, first, the teachers and children were shielded from the most severe part of the blast as they were behind um, the magic square that was separating them from David. Next, with the door and windows open, much of the force from the blast went harmlessly outside. Finally, they found several problems with the bomb causing only one-seventh of it to explode. One of the containers of blasting powder had become thoroughly soaked with gasoline, turning it into a useless paste. However, Investigators also said that there was physical evidence in the room that made no sense. 
The bomb should have blown up most of the school, leveling the room and killing everyone inside. But it didn't explode correctly. It was designed to explode outwards, but instead it exploded up through Doris and into the ceiling. Additionally, three of the five detonation wires had been inexplicably cut. The walls of the classroom were completely destroyed from the shrapnel, and yet none of the 154 hostages were hit by any of it. So, many people believe that what saved the hostages that day was divine intervention. Um, and I'm going to tell these stories, um, not because like, I'm trying to preach like religion or beliefs to anyone, but because it's not my story, it's theirs, and I want to share it exactly how they experienced it. Um, and also it's like really fucking cool. So there's that. Dozens of children reported seeing angels right before the bomb went off. The lead investigator's six-year-old son was a survivor of the blast and later told his dad about what really saved them that day. He said every person in that room had an angel and right before the bomb went off, he saw the angels create a circle around the bomb, holding hands and with the blast, they shot up into the ceiling. It should be noted that um, nobody but the investigators knew the direction of the bomb. Like nobody else knew that it exploded upwards instead of outwards. And his son later pointed to a photo of his late great grandmother and said, that's her. That's my angel. I have literal chills right now. Oh (laughs) my God. All right. Over the next few months, many children reported having been helped by angels. One of the little girls, Katie, was directed by a woman in white to go stand over by the window right when the blast went off. Then the woman disappeared. Katie later sees a photo of her mother's mother, who died when her mom was just 15 years old, and said that's the woman who helped her. Another little girl, Jenny, remembers being helped by a teacher who directed her towards an exit and held her hand the whole way out. When she was outside, Jenny looked up to see her hand holding nothing but air, and the woman was gone. Years later, when Jenny was 12, she was looking through a photo album and saw the teacher who helped her and asked why she quit after the bombing. Her grandparents were confused because the woman in the photo was her great aunt Ruth, who had died many years ago, and she wasn't a teacher. And there are several more. (laughs) My God. Yeah. And there are several more accounts of children being guided and helped by angels who were later identified as loved ones who had passed on. And it should be noted that a lot of these kids were too young to really understand who their deceased relatives were. Many of them hadn't even really seen the photos um, at all. Like, even though they're in photo albums, they never really looked at them. They didn't really know what they looked like. Um, Like that one girl, Jenny, uh, Jenny's mother's mother died when... Jenny's mother was so young they she only had like one photo and that was the first time she ever saw it and she immediately was like that's the woman that saved me anyway so meanwhile the love of my life Cynthia the job applicant was told she was going to need counseling but she said and I quote she was also on this episode of I survived it was her this young boy and um Carol Thompson that second grade teacher I quoted uh they were all in this episode and she said after being told she was going to do counseling, that man took two hours and 45 minutes of my life and he's not getting any more. Ow, ow, this girl. Mm-hmm. Um, but that you know, doesn't undermine the importance of therapy. Like, you know. No, absolutely not. But like, <laughs> I appreciate the sentiment of I'm not, I'm not dealing with this shit. Like, I'm surprised she made it out of the building with her massive balls. Like, honest to God, I can't believe she made it this far. <laughs> 
So the day after the bombing, um, when talking to the principal, she half jokingly said, you damn well owe me a job now. And he was like, yeah, you're right. And she was hired on the spot as a kindergarten teacher. And she stayed for two years. Like she literally hadn't even had an interview. And she, she was saying like, she didn't even want to go through with one at this point. She was like, just give me the fucking job. And in 2015, a movie was made about the event called the Cokeville Miracle. It was filmed in Kaysville, Utah, and it focuses heavily on the religious parts of the story. I watched the movie. It's on Amazon Prime. Um, so if you have a Prime membership, you can watch it for free. And I thought it was really good, regardless of the fact that it it's very, very religious. Um, so if you're interested, you can go watch it there. The end credits show pictures of the child survivors at the age they experienced the bombing alongside pictures of them as grown adults with families of their own oh i love Mm -hmm. that so much because you can really see the impact of like what this would have done had they not had the miracle that they had yeah and like each of them has like 17 kids now so it's it's it was really i got chills watching it because it's like you see the face of an eight-year-old girl and then they morph that face into the photo of her as an adult. And then you see her with like her husband and like eight kids. And you're like, like none of these children would be alive right now. It's, it's really incredible. Um, anyway, so, and also this is probably my favorite fact. So several of the extras in the film were played by actual survivors of the bombing. And many of the students were played by their children. Oh, <laughs> uh-huh. up. yeah. And, you know, a lot of them are like, I really like that we were able to do this together because it, it's a, and it was a really good bonding experience kind of going through that. And many of the survivors said that filming the movie was very therapeutic and helped them in the healing process. And that just is the story of the Cokeville hostage crisis. That was incredible. Beautifully researched, beautifully executed. I am embarrassed of how I delivered mine. Yours was so professional. No. Um, but Jess, that I is incredible. Don't have a life. I don't have a life. You have basically two and a half full-time jobs, a lot like a committed live-in boyfriend. And I my hours have been cut and I have just one job and I have nothing to do let's sit down and research this shit all day so and this was one of my favorite stories like I it was I don't know how many pages yours was but mine was like like eight (laughs) um so I might have to cut some of it but yeah Uh, mine was quite literally the wikipedia page and like four articles so (laughs) um wow that that was really really Awesome. Thank you for, thank you for sharing that. That is such an incredible survival story. And I think like the big thing, part of why I wanted to start this with survivals and kind of why, you know, this isn't a true crime podcast or like necessarily like a, a I survived kind of thing, but um, this is something that Alice and I talk about a lot and just like the, the um, implications of like, every action and every reaction is something that like we discuss at length and I think that survival stories are a perfect example of like when things go right in the worst circumstances what an impact that has Mm -hmm. um and I just like you know I'm not a super religious person but I would say I'm spiritual and like the children all seeing their loved ones 
protect them is just so incredible. And not even and, knowing who they were. Yeah, exactly. Well, and then also you kind of like just the the power of the power of family and of like loved ones because you know even in, in my survival story the thing that that drove him through was his mother and his faith in God. And even that even though that looks different than mine, like that faith in something that you love is so powerful Mm -hmm. yeah it was and it it should be said that not all of these kids were mormon like a lot of them were like it was a very religious lds town but Mm -hmm. a lot of them weren't and a lot of them still had that experience and i'm the same as you like i'm not religious but i am spiritual i do personally believe that angels and things could exist and part of it's because of stories like this where there were so Absolutely. many things that went right for it not to go wrong. This should have killed everybody in that room. Like I said, wiped out an entire generation of people, but not a single one of them died. Not yeah. a single one of them died. And it's, it's completely unexplainable. Um, I didn't put this in here cause it was like already 700 pages long, but one little girl was really badly burnt and um, she was going to need like a whole, like basically a whole facial reconstruction apparently a priest or a bishop or whoever like walked in and was like no she'll be fine and then she started healing extremely rapidly and they took off bandages and like her face was like completely healed and back to normal and you can't even tell that she was burned anymore and I mean oh I some, like, burning scars like burns don't go away like if you're badly burned no. like that's your skin is like melted into a different form, you know? And, but her face was completely back to normal and looking at her as an adult, you can't even tell that like, she was so badly burnt, like almost beyond recognition. I don't know. It's just crazy. There's just a bunch of different stories and I can't imagine the trauma they'd get from something like that. Like no yeah. amount of therapy would heal me from that kid seeing Doris run towards him on fire. Like, no well and like the smell Uh uh-huh and again this was too long but in the I survived that kid recalls going back into the classroom with his dad later and showing him like this is where I was standing and right where he was standing was this pool of dried blood and he recognized that as a spot where David shot and killed Doris and so she was running right towards him and it's a miracle that he got out when he did because like I said David was shooting in every direction like he could have just pointed at one of the kids point blank and shot them as they ran out the door like and every single one of them none nobody was shot but that but that art teacher who ended up making a full recovery it's oh my gosh that's crazy mm-hmm. well Allison I think that this has been a fantastic first start uh to our random podcast Mm -hmm. (laughs) um I you know I think as we we go about week to week I think that you know kind of drawing back to these these themes of of really why we're so interested in these types of stories and these types of subjects there's just so important um next week we will be covering dating in Utah specifically you know both as a straight person as somebody in the queer community and just kind of the unique challenges that dating in Utah brings um, we've got some really great, uh, 
responses from some people that we've reached out to, and we can't wait to run through that with you. So if you made it this far, thanks so much for listening to us and we uh, hope to see you next week. Yeah. Good night. And God bless. Right, Jess? If the Lord can lead you to <laughs> it, he can lead you through it. Oh, ooh, God bless. Blood. All right. All right. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> All right. Bye guys.